Well, how incredible is that? And uh, they're sitting right here in the front, and I can't look at them or I'm going to lose it. Um, <laughs> but what a cool story of how God is at work. And uh, some of you give me a hard time that I say that more Christians should adopt. Uh, but you can't argue with Paul uh, saying that. And so I'm not saying everyone uh, should foster adopt, but I do think many more believers should be a part of that. And uh, one of the incredible uh, things about this church family is that if that is something the Lord is putting on your heart, is that you are not alone uh, in that by any means, and uh, we want to walk alongside you. So uh, I'll make uh, you aware of our next uh, foster and adoptive uh, information night. That's the first Sunday in March. And it's going to be on Zoom at 6 o'clock that evening. So no one's going to hand you a baby because you're still at home. I'm um, not going to knock on your door with a child when you log into Zoom. And so uh, it's just an opportunity to learn more about uh, how you can be a part of um, this movement uh, that God has been doing since uh, the birth of his church. And so I uh, certainly uh, would love to come alongside you if that's something you believe the Lord might be leading you uh, to do. I do want to know who ended up with the Frisbee out of Pawn Lane, but you guys can tell me about that later. Um, let me also say this. Maybe you are not in a place uh, to foster or adopt. Every Sunday uh, of the 200 plus children who gather on our campus, about one out of five of them are foster or adoptive children. And so uh, being a part of our children's ministry uh, serve team uh, gives you the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus, uh, not just with, you know, our children that, you know, are, are here, your children that are here, but a lot of these children who uh, might just be here for a short period of time. And so uh, you being a part of that really does contribute uh, to them understanding who their identity is in Christ Jesus. And so that's just another reason that I would encourage you to serve in our children's ministry. Let me also make you aware of another opportunity that you have to be involved in being the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, we as a church are involved in several strategic partnerships uh, across the globe. Uh, two of those, uh, one in Uganda and one in India, are our trips that we're taking this year to serve them and uh, come alongside our missionaries there. And um, we have uh, the need for a few more people to go on those trips, uh, two uh, people for Uganda and two ladies, if possible, for India. And so you can go on our website, you can fill out an application there, and our missions uh, team will, be, will get in touch with you uh, about uh, further steps in terms of getting involved in those opportunities. So I would encourage you to pray about that and uh, fill out that application, even if you don't have a yes or no yet. And uh, well, if you have a no, I guess don't do it. You're wasting our time. But you know, if you don't have the yes yet, you can fill out the application and we can have a conversation. If you're visiting with us today, let me say that we're just incredibly grateful uh, that you're here with us and we'd love to know who you are. You can text the word connect to the number that is on the screen and one of our connect team members will follow up with you this week. If you're watching online, thank you for joining us for the first time and uh, you can uh, text that word and we'd love to connect with you. If you're here with us on campus, uh, please stop by one of the welcome areas when you're way, on your way off the campus this morning and our team will be there to help you learn how you can get connected into the life of our church and what God is doing here. Well, we are continuing to go through the book of Galatians. Uh, today we'll be uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, through chapter 4, verse 7, as we continue in our series, Centered, and we continue to talk about the promise of the gospel. 
You know, whenever uh, the Lord finally got a hold of me, if you will, when I was in college um, and I was working for this mortgage company, I had, had I'd given my life to Christ as a teenager, but I really ran from the call of God on my life um, for various reasons that are, we can get into another time. But um, in college, the Lord uh, began to, you know, just get a hold of me. I began to make uh, plans to, to quit my job, go to quit, you know, tra- transfer schools, go to Bible college, all those things. And I remember uh, not sure. Shortly, not that long after that, my roommate, uh, you know, the Lord really began to work in his life as well. And, and yet one day I, I came home from work and my roommate was sitting in our apartment in the living room and he was ready for me to walk in the door. And he immediately began, you know, how you doing? Good. Okay. Do Christians have to do all the things in the Bible to get to heaven? Before I could even answer him, he said, and if not, why does God have all these rules for us? All these things we have to do. And before I could answer that, he said, and if he knew I was gonna break them, why does he even give me the choice in the first place? And me, just kind of being new really into the faith and, and study of the Bible and not really knowing what to say, just said, Jesus loves you. <laughs> like I really didn't know what to say in that moment. Now these feelings that my roommate had are feelings that most people have wrestled with at some point, perhaps this morning, this is the reason that you are not all in. And, and I think that not settling these things is the reason that some people get off track and then lead others to get off track. We've been going through the book of Galatians, and the Galatian tension is between the law and faith. There are some who are placing an emphasis on the law as the measure of righteousness. Specifically, they're saying, if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. And so, if you didn't grow up in the Jewish faith and circumcision wasn't a part of your background, you have to get circumcised or you're not really a Christian. The major focus of Paul's letter is correcting this mindset. He's been trying to get the Galatians to look at the gospel. And he has referred back to Abraham to get them to see it. And as we continue in Galatians today... We're going to see Paul explain this to them, which has been preserved for us and helps us see how important it is that we understand the promise of the gospel. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, to give a human example of what? This is why context, context, context is important when you read the Bible. When you read the Bible, maybe somebody posts a verse of the day on you know, their Facebook feed or Instagram, or, or maybe somebody, uh, some pastor is just talking about you know, something about life and then he throws in a Bible verse here every time he makes a point. You have to understand the context to really grasp what that verse is saying. And so we need to understand that the context of what Paul is beginning to say here is the distortion of the gospel that has been talked about leading up until this point. Paul has explained up until this point, righteousness does not come from the law. It comes from faith in Christ. And he's appealing to Abraham right before this. And he said, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So he says, think about it like this. Think about a man-made covenant. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 
Now, of course, this sounds incorrect to us because we can change contracts uh, often. This is the cancel culture, right? But this was also true of Romans and Greek contracts as well. But in Hebrew, there was a concept, matanite barai, which was a covenant that could not be changed. It could not be annulled. And I think this concept was widely known amongst early believers. They would be familiar with the story of Esau and Jacob, where Isaac accidentally, he was tricked into giving Jacob the birthright, but he made an oath that could not be broken. And so in God's plan, but in, in terms of man-made understanding, that had to indeed be something that he fulfilled to Jacob. We think of the story of the prodigal son and the covenant of inheritance that had been given to the, the two brothers, and yet the one son wanted it early, and, and the father had to give it to him. And so with that in mind, Paul sets this up as an illustration of, of how the Mosaic law must not be interpreted as an annulment or alteration of the terms of the Abrahamic covenant. He says, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. God made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. The promise of that covenant was that the inheritance of salvation would come, not to all of Abraham's descendants, but to his offspring, which is ultimately the Christ. We are seeing that the fulfillment of that promise was Jesus. And in him, we find the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And a fulfillment of God's promise that is not Jesus is just temporary. A fulfillment of God's promise that is not Jesus is just temporary. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing about his desire to visit the Corinthians again. And not knowing if he will be able to do that, but desiring to do that and desiring good things for them. And, and then he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The reason when we pray we ought to say, in Jesus' name, amen, is because a fulfillment of God's promise that is not Jesus is just temporary, and all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so, if God promises to provide for us, and he does provide for us on earth, we must not lose sight of God's intention to ultimately provide for us in Christ Jesus. If God promises to protect us, and he does, and we experience that protection in a temporal way, 
we must not cause us that, excuse me, we must not allow that to cause us to lose sight of how we will ultimately be secure in Christ Jesus. If God promises to give us direction and wisdom, which he does, and we receive wisdom and direction for the things of earth, we must understand that God's true wisdom, God's true direction, God's true guidance, God's true destiny for our life is found eternally in Christ Jesus. Any earthly temporary fulfillment of the promises of God is just that. And if God says no to us in this earth, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so if we don't experience his protection and we don't experience his provision and we don't experience his direction in this earth, in this situation, it is ours in Christ Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, Lord, I now know why you utter no answer. It is because you yourself are the answer. When you look to Abraham, there was temporary fulfillment of the promises of God through his descendants, through his natural descendants, and through the nation of Israel. And there is ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. He is the offspring. He is the reason for the promise. He is the reason for this covenant with Abraham. And Paul is saying this because the focus of the Judaizers is on the law as a means for righteousness. Look at verse 17. He says this. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So God makes a promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham preempts and transcends the law given through Moses. God gave Israel the Ten Commandments through Moses and he gave them more rules, moral law, judicial law, ceremonial law, but these laws do not affect the covenant previously made by God. The covenant made to Abraham, made with Abraham, never went away. God is not now basing the inheritance on something new. He's not saying, once I taught you to trust me, now I teach you to work for me. Once I taught you to rely on grace, now I teach you to earn it. Once I taught you to glorify me through dependence on me, now I teach you to be glorified through figuring it out. God does not contradict his covenant in this way. If God had set the inheritance on a new basis and not now taught people to earn their salvation by keeping the law, he would have been opposing the promise and nullifying grace. Make no mistake, the law is holy and it is just and it is good, but it does not teach us to engage in the Galatian heresy of legalism. It teaches the obedience which comes from faith and applies the Abrahamic covenant to a new stage of redemptive history. That is what Paul is trying to drive home here to the Galatians who have elevated the law. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, longer, it no longer comes by promise. 
but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul says, it's either or. Either the inheritance comes from keeping the law or from the promise of God. And Paul's saying, the Bible says it comes from the promise of God. I have two diagrams to show you. I've seen these all over the internet, so I don't know where they originally came from. Not for me. Uh, but uh, if you'll put those up there, uh, I think these illustrate very well what I'm trying to say. So the Bible is the story of God's pr- promise of redemption, of redemption through the Redeemer. Everything in the Bible points to that. And so, sorry. Anyway, I'm popping you can go back, by the way. That wasn't a cue to go to the next, so thank you. Okay, um, all right. So, so even in the garden, he makes a promise to Eve after the fall that you know, he'll, he'll redeem his people through her offspring. Then he makes the promise to Abraham. Then he makes the promise through Moses and to Israel. The law is contained within that. And then the fulfillment of that promise is fulfilled in Christ. But this is all a part of the same promise. The law is contained within that promise. And so you can go to the next diagram now. So you see in the Bible, you have the covenant of community that happens with the people of God. This is in terms of Israel. Then you have the covenant of the king that is made to David. And the covenant of perfect peace, the new covenant, is the fulfillment of that community under the king of Jesus. And so the law... The covenant of holy living just binds that together, but it serves the purpose of the promise. And so the law's role was to point us to our need for the promise to be fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish the law. He doesn't get rid of the law. He fulfills it. So then that brings us to my friend Aaron's question. So why the law? And it's not just a question Aaron had, it's a question many have. How do I know that? Well, because I talk to people. And it's preserved in scripture for us. Look at what verse 19 says. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So why are the laws given to us? Because of transgressions. You see, there are two roles of the law. Two roles of the law. The first is that it serves as a restraint. This works differently before Christ and after we trust in Christ. There are seven plus billion people in the world and they all stay connected to a common law. I know we could say there's all these differing beliefs and religions, but if you look at history and you look at societies over history and geographically, there's a lot of commonalities, even though they don't have exposure to the same things. And so this is why most people don't speed crazily. They speed still, but they don't speed crazily. And this is why most people don't get out of the car and kill people who are going slow in the left-hand lane when they're trying to speed. Through threats of punishment or consequences, the law keeps our sinful natures in check. The law says you may feel like committing adultery, but this is what it will do to your marriage, your family, your heart, and the glory of God. And so it, for the most part, keeps people in check. The law says you might just want to take that thing of your neighbor's, but this is what's probably gonna happen if you take that thing of your neighbor's. 
And so we obey the law even when we don't feel like it and it curbs the effects of our sin. And then after being saved, the law shows us the best way we can honor the God that we love. The law perfectly reveals God's character to us and shows us what a life pleasing to God looks like. So the law serves as a restraint. The law also serves the role of a mirror. It serves as a mirror. The law shows us our sin. God wants us to see our sin clearly. The law reveals to us what a truly righteous heart should look like. It shows us the way our heart should be. Martin Luther said, the law made me hate God. The more the law showed me what I should be, the more I realized how much I wasn't. And so by looking into the mirror of the law and then comparing our actual state of our hearts to it, we realize how sinful and twisted our hearts are and how desperately we need a savior. So people tend to say, it's the rules that make me bad, but it's really not. They're just there because of the transgression showing us our sin or showing us why we sin. You see, we sin because we are sinners. That's why we sin, because it's who we are. It's our identity. Sin is in our hearts. Jesus said that what comes out of the heart is what defiles a person, not comes within. You see, modern viewpoints are the evil is out there, and we've just got to get in touch with our inner heart where the good is. That's in direct opposition to the words of Jesus Christ. The reality is sin is in our hearts. It's who we are. And what Paul is trying to establish as clear, and I hope you understand is this, forcing ourselves to obey the law doesn't erase the presence of sin in our hearts. Since sin consists primarily of our corrupt desires, and those are present whether we act on them or not. The law keeps us from further damage caused by acting on sin. When I force myself, though, to obey the law, obedience will only be short-lived. And merely forcing my heart to do the right thing won't change it. Paul is saying the focus, the central thing, has to be the gospel, which was preached beforehand to Abraham and is now proclaimed to you. The law can't become central. The law can't take the place of the promise. J.D. Greer puts it this way. The law is the thermometer. The gospel is the thermostat. The law is the thermometer. The gospel is the thermostat. The law tells us the temperature of the room. The gospel changes the temperature of the room. You understand? You're with me? Two of you are with me. That's good. <laughs> Look, if you don't love something, no command can change that. Those of you who know me well know I really don't like spaghetti. I said I don't like spaghetti, not Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. Some of you are looking at me like <laughs> I said that. I, I don't. I don't like spaghetti. The first service I said I hate spaghetti and a lot of our... Uh, a lot of people that are my grandma's age said, you shouldn't say you hate things. And I said, yes, ma'am. So I said, I don't like it. 
But if you do love something, nobody has to command you to love it. I love pizza. It's obvious that I love pizza. You don't have to tell me love pizza. And if you tell me not to love pizza, I'm still gonna love pizza. That's part of my problem. You see, the law is not the answer here. Paul says it's there as a restraint, it's there as a mirror until the offspring should come. Historically and personally, God made the promise to save us. We won't know that until we see our need for salvation. So the law is helpful because it shows us the truth that we are headed for danger. You know, there's a movement towards amongst Christians that pastors, believers should only speak positivity. And we shouldn't talk about sin. Well, here's the problem. That's a lie. That would be like finding your child or a child playing in traffic, running after them, them running away from you into traffic, grabbing them, and all you say is, you're so fast. You need to help them to understand the danger with which they put themselves in by the choices that they make. The law is good. The law was placed through the angels by an intermediary, Paul says. Look at verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So God gave us the law. The law is good, but the law is not the answer. Jesus is the answer. The law is not enough. Jesus is enough. The intermediary is serving the purpose of God. The law, therefore, is not God. The law, therefore, does not justify. Moses was used by God to deliver the law. For Moses, the covenant made at Mount Sinai was a reaffirmation and spelling out of the covenant made with Abraham. See, this problem arose in in the Jewish culture in Jesus' day, which was contributing to the Galatian heresy. And they would refer to themselves as people of Moses. But they were not to be referred to as people of Moses. They were the people of Abraham. They were the children of Abraham because they were the children of the promise. You know, over the past probably 30, 40, 50 years, there's been uh, a lot of tension. It's died down. Um, But over the Ten Commandments being on government buildings. And, you know, as Christians... And I have nothing, no problem with the Ten Commandments being in the lawn. But as Christians, we feel like they have to be there because that sends the right message to a society. But I w- what I would suggest to you is that what would send the mess- right message to a society is Galatians 2.20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because what that shows is my need to put God and others before myself in every situation. And if that's what I'm ruled by, and that's what I'm living by, then I assure you that affects a lot more than 10 commandments. The truth of why we couldn't put that on there It's because that's not the reason a lot of people wanted the Ten Commandments on there. They wanted to focus on the law, not a focus on the heart that transcends the law. 
I need you to understand that what God says in Exodus chapter 20, I don't know why this isn't talked about more. When he gives the 10 commandments, in verse two, before he says, thou shalt not, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Now obey me because of that. You see, that's what faith is about. It's obedience because God has brought us out of slavery. And church, what our culture needs, what our society needs is to understand that they are enslaved, that we are enslaved to sin, and our only hope is God bringing us out of that slavery. And our obedience is because of what he has rescued us from and done in our life. But the law, the law, it's not contrary to all that. It, it never even promised righteousness. It just showed us how to live because of the promise. And it shows us our need for the promise. Verse 27. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be Revealed. So scripture imprisons us. You're like, then how is that a good thing? Well, I know people who are part of my family, who I've met, who they might be free, but what's in here is causing them to be imprisoned in their life. And going to jail might be good for them. Because in that moment, they might realize, I'm imprisoning myself with a life that I am living. It shows me that I am a slave and I see it now because my actions have led me to be behind bars. And the law shows us that we're not truly free if we're trusting in our desires. When I look into the mirror of the law, I see I'm in trouble. And so then, verse 24 says, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The word guardian or custodian there refers to a servant of the family responsible to watch over the son from the nursery until manhood. And the purpose of the guardian, you might say nanny here, and a strict nanny, was to keep you in check until you see the father. The nanny serves the purpose of the father. In the same way, the law serves the purpose of God. Look at verse 25. But now... That faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What Paul is saying is now that the promise has been fulfilled, we don't need the laws to keep us in check. Now we are sons of God. We are mature to walk in the ways of our Father through faith. We were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We are walking with Christ. Our focus is on our relationship with him. It is on faith and trust in him, not the law. And a focus on the law is a sign of spiritual immaturity. A focus on the law is a sign of spiritual immaturity. If you have to wake up in the morning and say, I can't murder anyone today because the Bible says so, that's immature faith. I can't take my neighbor's car because the Bible says I shouldn't steal, that's an immature faith. 
What happens when we walk with Jesus is our identity changes and we're given a freedom to follow him in faith. But yet what's happening in in the church in Galatia is you still have a group that's saying, you have to do this. You have to do these things to be a Christian. And they're saying you have to be Jewish to be a Christian. You have to follow the law to be a Christian. And Paul says being Jewish doesn't make you a Christian. Verse 28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, what Paul's saying here is that the Galatian issue was Greeks needed to become Jewish to be saved, the Jews said. And so the Greeks responded by saying, well, then if you're still Jewish, you must not be saved. And there was a mentality that said, how can a slave be saved if they don't have freedom on this earth? And then the slaves would say, well, if you have somebody who's a slave in your house, then how can you be saved? And then people would say, you know, this is my identity. This is my identity. He says, your identity isn't in the things of the world. If you are Christ, then you're an heir of the promise of God. This was the promise, the gospel preached beforehand. He goes on, chapter four, verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, pay attention, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He again uses this concept of a custodian or a nanny. That's how the law functioned for Israel. It provided direction and restraint. It prescribed the way a mature child should behave, but it could not give Israel a new heart, nor could it give them the inheritance. It didn't have the right and authority to do that. According to Hebrews chapter four, verse two, the reason the law did not benefit much of Israel is because the law was not met with faith. Israel, for the most part, did not humble themselves. And so the law functioned to serve, to expose Israel's sin and hold them under restraint until the day when God began to take away the blindness and give them a heart to trust him. That's why Paul writes this of the Jews who are trusting in the law. Romans 10, verse one. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He says they had a desire for righteousness that was not in line with the scriptures with the understanding of the promise that was made to Abraham. And they're using the law as the means for righteousness. But Christ is the end of that. He ends that argument. In verse four he says, here's how he ended that argument. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, 
God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In the fullness of time, when the promise was fulfilled, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, the only one who ever perfectly upheld the law to redeem those who were under the law, who deserved the curse that the law says we deserve by becoming a curse for us. Whenever my roommate talked to me about these things some 20 years ago, he was at a place in his life where he didn't want Jesus's authority. He wanted to pursue his own desires. God has worked in his life and that's not him today. But let me just say this to you this morning. Perhaps you're here, perhaps you're watching online and you see your sin. You see your sexual desires that you want to pursue, that you want to act upon, regardless of who tells you not to, even if God tells you it's not wise. Perhaps you see the envy in your heart, the greed in your heart that is causing you to continue to pursue things and leaving you with a discontent. Perhaps there's anger in your heart. There's a lack of forgiveness in your heart. There's bitterness in your heart and you are fully confronted with these things. And maybe even as I say that, or if someone who knows you better were to talk to you about those things, you would say, who are you to judge me? And what I have noticed about most people is that no one has a problem with God's authority until it conflicts with our autonomy. No one has a problem with God's authority, him being in charge, him being right, until it conflicts with us doing what we want to do and what we want. And we're gonna have to realize in this moment, we have a choice to make. Are we gonna trust in ourselves for the justification that we want before God? Or are we gonna trust in what God says justifies us? Maybe you see your need this morning. You see the sin in your life. And the story from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation is where sin abounded Grace abounds all the more. That is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners so deeply that only God could save us, and he does. He saves us. He has acted in human history in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to become the curse of the law for those who were cursed by the law so that we might be freed in him, so that we might cry, Abba, Father. So that we might be adopted, Paul says, into his family. You see, 
There are no citizens who are naturally born into God's kingdom. And there are none who earn citizenship. There are only sinners who are granted citizenship because the king adopted them. And the rights of the king are given to you. And the gospel is indeed reflective of what we see when we see earthly adoption. The gospel is not change and I'll accept you as my son or my daughter. The gospel is realize you need a father and submit to him and trust him. You see, the beauty in the picture of what we saw today and is not just in Larry and Liz and their desire to give a child a family, but it's in the recognition that we are all created for a family and that God can give you the heart of a child who desires to be around and like their father. And this is what changes your status from like a slave to an heir. If I were to have that conversation with my friend Aaron today, 20-something years later, I've been to a few Bible colleges and had degrees and studied a bunch, and so I'd probably say some things. But you know what I'd say? Just like it did 20-something years ago, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Because that's what all of this is about. That's what all of this is about. The love of your heavenly father for you. And I would just say that some of you this morning, you're weary. You're burdened from trying to be good enough, from trying to figure it out. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Go to him. Go to him. And Christian, we don't move past that. We don't move past that, but we stay awestruck by the reality that all the promises of God find their yes in him. My God bless you keeping that central in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beautiful picture that we understand the call in our life is to run to the arms of you who invite us to be your son and your daughter. And I pray everyone in this room feels that. And this is not a feeling without a foundation. But this is a feeling deeply rooted in your revelation to us through your word and in Christ where the fullness of God was revealed to us. 
May Jesus get glory from our lives as we respond today. In his name I pray, amen.